morning scripture, Romans 16, 17 through 20. I appeal to you, brothers, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good, and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. The Word of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for these words that were penned by Paul and spoken by your Holy Spirit through him, Father, that you would illuminate them in our hearts and minds. Because, Father, we know without your Spirit it's impossible for us to even begin to understand them. And, Lord, we just ask for your help as we go through these passages this morning. And, Father, I pray that the words I speak be not of me, but be of to you and be glorifying unto you. For it is in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. So we are basically looking at the same passage that we went through last week. I wanted to take a little bit more time to focus on perhaps the last part of verse 20 than what I did last week. I kind of just sort of gleamed over it a little too quickly. Um, my plan is to wrap up Romans next Sunday, and that will be the end of it. We have Paul giving a few more things, and then he has a rather long doxology at the end of it. So after, I think, roughly three years, we will finish up our study of Romans. Um, then that last Sunday in July, um, Nathan's going to be speaking, and Brady's going to be ordained, JB is going to be here, so I look forward to that. So I won't be speaking, and then we are going on vocation, vacation for three weeks, going out west, so we won't be back, I think around the 21st, actually I won't be that Sunday, so it'll be the next Sunday, but when I come back, we're going to start Corinthians, so we will pick up with the book of Corinthians and have an introduction into that. So this is the next to last week of our study of Romans. So last week we saw Paul giving the church at Rome some instruction and sort of a a final warning as he closes out this wonderful letter. And the warning was to look out for people who cause division in the church. And he kind of continues with his theme of unity. But as a part unique to his theme of unity is to watch out for those that cause division and create stumbling blocks within the church and the nature of these divisions and the nature of these stumbling blocks is in the form of what these people teach what these people espouse in the church I can but I won't not only do these people carry with them incorrect doctrine, but then they teach that doctrine to others. And in the teaching of that doctrine to others, it creates divisions in the church and creates stumbling blocks in the church. And so Paul tells them, tells us, tells them, be on the lookout for these types of people. Watch out for them. Last week, if you recall, I used the example of Peter 
whenever in Galatians, the second chapter, Peter was basically being hypocritical because whenever he was around the Jews, he would act a certain way. And then whenever he was around the Gentiles, he would act a certain way. And Paul confronted him, confronted him in public and called him out on it. And so as I thought about that, another example came to my mind, and it was the example from Acts 18 when Apollos was preaching. And Apollos was preaching, and Priscilla and Aquila were there to hear him. And he was preaching about Jesus, but he didn't know about any other baptism besides John's baptism. He didn't know what we know about baptism and really what the working of God's grace was all about. And I use that as an example because of the way that Priscilla and Aquila dealt with Apollos. So Paul tells us that we are to avoid those that cause division, who teach things differently than what the Word of God tells us to teach. But if we look at Priscilla and Aquila, we can see an example where they came across Apollos, who was teaching something different than what the truth was, right? They didn't avoid him. They went to him. They pulled him in. They taught him what the correct doctrine was. They loved on Apollos. Apollos acknowledged what he was teaching was incorrect. He changed his teaching and he went forward and he was a wonderful disciple of Jesus Christ throughout the New Testament time. And so I think we could see them as an example. And so we have to be careful just to say, well, they don't teach the way that the word of God says, so I'm going to avoid them. And clearly, Priscilla and Aquila could have done that, but they did not do that. They sought him out, and they gave him direction, they gave him love, they helped him to change the way that he understood the gospel and what he understood about baptism. Now, the difference, I think, in Apollos and the difference, I think, in some of these false teachers that Paul is talking about is a matter of the heart. Apollos was there 100% to serve God. He was there to further the kingdom of God. He had no hidden agenda. That's what he wanted to do above all things. But Paul warns us of these people, and these people, their desires and ambitions are a little bit different than what Apollos' was. Their teachings centered on themselves. Their teachings centered on their own desires and not the glorification of God. Verse 18, if you remember that, Paul says that they serve only their own appetites. They serve only their own desires. Essentially, these people were teaching in a way that benefited themselves only. And did not glorify God. For example, it may be very popular to teach that God wants everybody to be rich and wealthy. To have everything that they want. And as part of that teaching, and as part of this false type gospel, they encourage everybody to give money to that ministry. Right? So hopefully everybody in here knows that that is not a biblical teaching, that that is not from the Bible, but you see how that serves 
the fleshly desires of the teacher. That's the type of thing that Paul's talking about. They serve only their appetite. So the idea is, is if we can get everybody believing and giving, then the teacher's going to be rich. Those are the desires of the appetite or the desires of the flesh and that type of teaching that Paul's saying, beware, be on the lookout for, be watchful. Or someone that loves a certain type of sin, whatever it may be. So then, because of that, it would be in their best fleshly interest to teach that that's not really a sin, right? Because it would benefit them. And so Paul's saying, look, beware of these false teachers because they're going to cause a lot of damage in the church. They're going to cause division. They're going to cause others to stumble. They're going to cause the church to stumble. And I think we can see it in churches throughout the world even today as, as I stand here. And these are two examples, but the examples are endless. Anytime someone has an, a desire to benefit their flesh then you ha- you run the risk of these types of situations happening paul says they're smooth talkers that they are experts in flattery they're going to be very likable and it's going to be easy for you to think mm, that sounds pretty good right they're going to appeal to the flesh when they come in and say hey you know, God wants you to be rich. Your, your flesh is going to say, okay, I'll listen to you. I'll listen to that because the flesh part of me sounds like, that. Ah, I can deal with that. So that's the danger is they, they get in the door very easily. And so Paul is warning the Romans. He's warning us, don't be deceived by this because the danger is real. The danger is real, and the destruction can be great. Not only does he warn us not to be deceived by this teaching, but but his words are stronger than that, and he tells us to avoid these people altogether. Absolutely avoid them. Don't associate with them. Because when we associate with them, then, then we entertain these types of teachings. And there is a risk that we are led astray. You know, we can kind of grab an analogy from your children. Do you want your children exposed to things that's going to lead them astray later in life? We try to avoid that, right? We try to teach them what is right and avoid subjecting them to the evils that can cause damage to them as they grow. Same principle with the church. And that's what Paul was trying to tell us here. We want to avoid subjecting ourselves or exposing ourselves to these people that only desire is their own bellies and is to deceive us and lead us or possibly lead us astray. Sort of the old saying, if you play with fire or you entertain that fire, watch out because you might get burned. And that was the danger that Paul was warning them all about. There is an extreme danger in entertaining these types of teachers. 
so dangerous that he encourages us to avoid them. We pick this up now in verse 19. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. So Paul was such an encouraging force as an apostle. He was always quick to encourage others, to to lift up others in that early church. And even as we read his letters, he does the same for us today. So he gives the church at Rome a great deal of encouragement here as he writes to them. He recognizes their obedience. He recognizes their obedience and tells them and explains to them that it's known to everyone That you're a great church, you're very obedient. In fact, your obedience is known to everyone. Back in chapter 1, you go all the way back, years ago, all the way back to chapter 1. And he wrote to them and he tells them that their faith is being proclaimed in all the world. Wow. How encouraging that must be for this church at Rome to read that. How encouraging would it be for some great Christian leader to write the church and say, your faith is being proclaimed in all the world. Wow. How uplifting that must have been for the Roman church at that time. He rejoices over their obedience and he is encouraging them. And I think he's setting this up because... He didn't want to offend them with what was coming next. He didn't want them to feel like they were small children and didn't know how to act as a Christian church. So he's telling them, he's encouraging them, your obedience is known everywhere and I rejoice over you. So I hope you can see the pattern in how Paul's writing this. If he would have left that out and just said, hey, I want you guys to do this and don't do this or avoid that, then they're going to be like, hey, I think we can take care of ourselves, Paul. It's sort of offensive that you don't even trust us to be able to to run our own church here. But Paul sets it up by saying, look, you guys are a great church. You know what you're doing. Your faith is proclaimed all over the world. You are obedient, and I rejoice over that. But oh, by the way, there's something that I want you to be acutely aware of. Something else that I want you to look out for. He felt this great and strong compulsion to warn them. I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise. I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. As I said last week, that's a desire for our children, right? I think we all have that desire for our children, and we don't want our children to lose that innocence. It's, it's beautiful in and of itself, and I, and I think Paul pictured the same type of innocence with respect to the church. He wanted them to know what was good, and he wanted them to be innocent as to what was evil. Now, Paul, what he's doing here is taking Jeremiah 4.22 and he's turning it upside down. It's sort of the inverse of Jeremiah 4.22. In Jeremiah 4.22, God says, For my people are foolish. 
They know me not. They are stupid children. They have no understanding. They are wise in doing evil, but how to do good they know not. So Paul takes this passage from Jeremiah where God is talking about how it's just the opposite, that God's people are stupid, that all they know how to do is evil, that they don't know anything about doing good. And then Paul says, we're going to flip that on its head and I'm going to take it and I'm going to send it to the Roman church to tell them that I want them to be stupid when it comes to evil and I want them to be wise into how to do good. In Matthew 10, 16, when Jesus was sending out his disciples to preach, he told them that, that he wanted them to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. I will tell you that there are a lot of absolute experts when it comes to cheating, lying, stealing, killing, doing all types of different evil. They're really good at it. We can see them on the news. You can see different instances of that happening. They spend so much of God's gifts that he's given them to do nothing but evil. I've often said that these people spend all their time on using God's gifts and evil. Think about how much advancement they could do for the church if they used God's gifts for the church instead of their own appetites or their own evil desires. It would be amazing. We kind of see a little bit of it in Paul, right? Paul was killing Christians. He was belligerent. But yet he had a, a wonderful, logical mind that was unsurpassed when it come to knowing and understanding the Word of God. And God flipped him and he took all those gifts that were used for evil and started using them for the glory and to the glory of God. And we see what he was able to accomplish. Magnificent things because of that. But there are those who use everything from evil, don't even know what good is, much less how to do it. And that's the opposite of what Paul is wanting from the church at Rome, from us as Christians. He wants us and desired for us to use our talents for good, but we have to be careful and not be naive as to evil. And this is a fine line. It's a fence that we have to oftentimes walk. There is a, a tension about doing and knowing good and not being naive about what is evil. We see that play, played out with our kids as well, right? I mean, they are easily deceived because they're pure and then bad things happen and that's what Paul's concern is was this church this church did so much good everything was pure within it he didn't want them to be easily deceived by someone coming along teaching a doctrine that would be divisive 
that would only fulfill a selfish individual. It's a balancing act, and you have to keep it in tension. It can also cause us to have a jaded outlook as well. Whenever we are exposed to that and we lose that naivety or that sense of being naive as to what is really evil, it can cause us to have a bad or jaded outlook on others. When you see evil, when you see evil and when you are exposed to that evil, maintaining a positive outlook on other people is difficult. When you see evil and you are exposed to evil, maintaining a positive outlook on everyone is extremely difficult. I will tell you because I suffer from that very situation. I've always joked with my boys I kind of felt bad for them because I never believed anything they ever said. They had to prove it to me. When they spoke, the assumption was, yeah, you're not telling me the truth. And we laugh, but it's kind of a sad way of living life. And it's not the way that God intended for life to be lived. I mean, we are to look at each other as being made in the image of God. And we are to love each other in that way and embrace each other and be pure with each other. But whenever you get overexposed to everybody all day, every day, lying to you, seeking to do something that is not right, that is evil or whatever the case may be, it is so incredibly difficult to do. It is hard to maintain a positive outlook on others and it is a battle I have to fight against the instinct that I have learned unfortunately over time to see people that to see that everyone is made in God's image because that is as I said very hard for me God doesn't want us to think that way he wants us to think good of everyone to see everyone as made in his image and to be pure that all we think about is what is good and pure and godly and not what is evil and ungodly so we transition into verse 20 we need to remember where we came from in verse 19 Verse 19, he's telling us we have to be diligent. We have to watch out for what is evil. We have to be careful. And that is a battle. That is a battle. And it is a battle that occurs between these two things that I hear with and that we hear with. The biggest battle and the biggest suffering for a Christian, and we talked about this in Sunday school, isn't this physical pain, because we all deal with the physical pain, right? Some more than others, but, but physical pain is real. We're all going to deal with it at some point in time. But it is the mental strain of the battle every day that beats you down. And so that's what we're dealing with in 19, and then we transition to verse 20. 
And Paul has just told us to push back against evil and do what is good and resist being naive or resist what is evil. And the battle is real and the battle is hard and Paul knows that in 19, so he shifts gears in 20. And so he's back to being the encouraging Paul. If you see how he did this, in the beginning of verse 19, he's encouraging You guys are a good church, you're an obedient church, I rejoice over you. But by the way, there's this battle, and you're going to have to fight this battle, and it's not going to be easy, it's going to be hard, it's going to cause mental anguish, it's going to drag you down, there are going to be times when you're like, I don't want to do this anymore. I can't fight this battle anymore. But it's coming, but now I'm going to go back to encouraging you. So it's sort of an encouragement, warning Not going to be easy, encouragement type split between verses 19 and 20. Paul, being the ever encouraging disciple that he was, tells us that God is the God of what? Peace. Just see if you're still awake. The God of peace. 19 tells us that there's not going to be any peace in that. There's not any peace in trying to do what is good, avoid what is evil, pushing back, recognizing the differences in the two. It's non-stop. And it will twist your brain and warp your brain to where, as I said, you kind of want to quit. But Paul says, look, I got good news. God is the God, not a God, the God of peace. He is the God of peace. And peace can be a very scarce commodity when you're stuck in the middle of verse 19. But he wants to encourage us by telling us that it's not God that's in the middle of verse 19. It's evil that's in the middle of verse 19. It's sin that's in the middle of verse 19. That God is the God of peace. Peace is coming. Relief is coming. Sort of like the rain at the end of the drought. That it's coming. It's going to get here. It may not have its fullness today. It may not have its fullness tomorrow or the day after that. But it is coming. The God of peace is going to crush Satan. Whoa! Satan. We've got seven verses left in the book of Romans. Seven left. We've been almost through 16 chapters. Do you guys realize that this is the very first and only mention of Satan in Paul's entire letter to Rome? One. That's it. Yet, I know Christians that are consumed with Satan. Got to fight Satan here, or Satan's making me do this, or Satan's winning this battle, or Satan's doing that, all the time. And yet, Paul gives us a treatise on Christianity, and he mentions him one time. One time. That's it. It takes him... Almost a full 16 chapters to ever acknowledge him. 
Recall we start out and at the beginning of this book, Paul's focused on who God is and sinful man and how horrible we are and our fallenness and the focus is on our condition. Our condition. What we are as sinners. So, I tend to think that we should give him a little bit less of our time and focus more on us and God. Because we can see that that's what Paul's intimating here. We, I will tell you, we are responsible for our actions, not Satan. We, this guy is going to stand before God someday. How far do you think it's going to get me to say he made me do it? Nowhere. Nowhere. Yet in this instance, and as part of Paul's encouraging to the Roman readers, he references a time when Satan is going to be crushed under our feet, it says here, under Christ. It's a reference that goes all the way back to Genesis, right? It was a reference right after the fall, right after they ate of the fruit. When Paul is talking to Eve in in Genesis 3.15, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your heel and you shall crush his head, meaning Jesus, meaning what's to come, the offspring, and, and how it's all finally going to play out. So the promise in the garden is this promise that God is, will crush Satan. Now I don't believe that this is a specific reference to a specific situation. I believe that it's a more general reference pointing back to verse 19. It said, look, I know this battle against evil is hard and long and draining, but there's going to be a time whenever the God of peace is going to crush Satan and in this crushing of Satan, that battle is going to go away. That battle is going to be over with. Done. No more of that battle. When sin is no more, the battle is no more. Is anyone looking forward to that moment? Because I am. I am. Paul's saying we must be vigilant and we must continue to be vigilant. He's acknowledging that there's going to be times when the battle is great, when we go weary, when we get tired of being in the fight. And avoiding what is evil. There are those moments, there are those times. But that's why Paul gives us verse 20. That the God of peace will win soon. That he's soon going to crush Satan under our feet. So Paul says, be of good courage. This battle in 19 isn't going to last forever. That it is soon going to be over. Peter sort of warns us of the same things. 2 Peter 3, 3 and 4. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. Following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep... 
All things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So there are going to be those saying, he's not coming back. People are still dying just the way they died right after the garden. Where, where is he? I don't see him. You've been telling me this for 2,000 years. Why are they going to say that? Because they're following their own sinful desires and they want you to do the same. Sounds a lot like the false teachers in Romans 16, doesn't it? Peter goes on, verses 8 through 10. But do not overlook this fact, beloved, that the Lord, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will all be exposed. So again, Peter is telling us that it's going to happen. It's going to happen. The promise of verse 20 will occur even when people say it's not going to occur, that God has just avoided it altogether, or maybe that there even isn't a God. Just because God has taken to what we believe to be so very long doesn't mean it's not going to happen. Just because we think he's taken a long time doesn't mean it's not going to happen. The fact that he's taken what we see as being so long shows a desire of God to save more people. What if God would have returned or Christ had returned 52 years ago? Be one less guy there. So don't mistake God, his patience, as the same thing as non-existence or the fact that he's lied to anybody. Instead, he's wanting to save more people. And that's basically what Peter was telling us. I can tell you I am eternally grateful that God decided to be more patient. But make no mistake... His patience isn't the same thing as forgetfulness. He will return, and his judgment is coming, and he will, in fact, crush Satan under foot. There we go. So the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your underfoot. So he gives us that as encouragement, but then you're saying, okay, that's not today. He's going to do it in the future. That's not helping me now. It's not helping me get through the struggle that I'm dealing with today of pushing back on sin and only doing what is evil. And so then he offers the very last part of verse 20 as well. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. It's sort of a benediction, but it's also, you're going to get through today, you're going to get through today's battle by the grace of God, that God's given to give you the grace that you need to get through the struggle of verse 19 today. Now we know that it's not going to last forever and that can be of great encouragement, but you're like, I need it today. It may not last for 50 more years, but I need help today. And that's what Paul's telling us. Your help today is coming from the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That is help 
for now, not encouragement for tomorrow. We're going to get into next week this final doxology. And he begins it with, now to him who is able to strengthen you. That's what he does. To him who is able to strengthen you now, today, for the battles that we endure. Jude has an absolute beautiful doxology that, I, that is a treasure. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forevermore. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling. That, the grace of Christ that gets us day to day to day to day. It's sort of like in Matthew when Jesus says, don't worry about the worries of tomorrow because they are enough to take care of themselves. Focus on today, and we know that Lamentations tells us, what does it tell us? His mercies are new when? Every day, every morning. So when I wake up and my feet hit the ground, I'm not going to worry about the battle that God's going to, tomorrow because God's going to give me the grace to deal with the battle of verse 19 that day. And when I wake up tomorrow, that grace is going to be given to me to deal with that battle that day as well. And that's the way that Christ sustains us every day of our lives until he ultimately crushes Satan under his feet and there is no more battle and no more need to do what is good and watch out and push back against what is evil. Amen? Let's pray. Most gracious God, Lord, we thank you for these encouraging words from Paul. Lord, we ask for your strength as we know that you're going to give it to us. We ask for your grace as we strive to do what is good, as we strive to push back on what is evil, as we battle that each and every day of our lives. Lord, we do look forward to a day when Satan and all of evil is crushed under our feet. But until that comes, Lord, we thank you for your grace that we know that you've guaranteed us, that grace that will sustain us and keep us and present us blameless on that glorious day. And Father, we just thank you for the encouraging words and your encouraging spirit. May everything we do glorify you. For it is in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen.